I know the past couple of weeks have been uh, rather challenging for some of us with the cold and the flu and uh, getting around and all of that, but uh, especially if you have young kids or um, and, and maybe they got sick and you've gotten sick, um, I know that that has been a little challenging and, a, and maybe even a bit overwhelming some days, but so thankful today for the fact that God has been faithful. So thankful for today for the fact that uh, God brings healing and that we are able to be together here this morning. We're able to open God's word again. And as we do, we're opening to the study of Jeremiah once again today. And so I want to start out this morning with a picture. And uh, this picture here is of three people. And um, you, you recognize maybe that first person or the, the middle person there in the picture. Uh, that's my wife, Sue. And then on the left of her is my uh, brother's wife, Stacy. And on the right of her, uh, right of my uh, wife, Sue, is uh, Mim, my aunt. Now, uh, this picture was taken back in September. Uh, our family got together to celebrate my dad's 70th birthday. We're sitting together on this porch and we're kind of just talking about life and kind of catching up on things together. Now, some of you know this already, but my Aunt Mim, uh, there on the right, she was diagnosed with a fairly aggressive form of cancer two years ago. She has gone through a number of different treatments, and over the last couple of years, um, uh, she has not experienced a cure, or uh, she's not really getting better. The, the day that we saw her, the day that this picture was taken, uh, was the day where she said it was probably the best day that she had had in months. In fact, her and her husband, they lived down in Florida. They had driven up to Ohio in order to be a part of this celebration and to just see everyone. And when they got to Ohio, they ended up having to go pretty much directly to the hospital for a few days because she was so exhausted that she needed medical treatment in order to recover. I, I talked to my mom earlier this week, and she told me that Mim is not doing very well. In fact, later on this month, she's going to be going to a hospital in Tampa, Florida, and she is going to start another round of treatments that will hospitalize her for a month or more. And so at the end of the message today, I just want to talk a little bit about Mim's journey of faith and trust in the midst of battling this very difficult disease, cancer. But for now, I just, as we look at this picture here, and we're sitting there together on this porch, my family, my brother's family, uh, Mim and her husband Lyle, and a few other relatives who had stopped by the house that day. And as we're sitting there, we're laughing, we're enjoying each other's company. We're also very aware that a meeting like this is probably not going to happen again this side of heaven. And so as we begin this morning, I want us to just think about what it means, what, it, what it's like to be on the porch. What it's like to be fighting something where we realize that we might be fighting a losing battle. That, that this situation is not going to go as we had hoped. This situation is not going as we had prayed. It has been long, it has been hard, and it has become apparent that things aren't getting better. This may not end well. The question that, I, that we've been kind of going through in this series is, how do you endure seasons like this? How do you cling to God through these types of seasons in life? How, how do you cling to trust in seasons like this? 
How do you maintain a level of emotional and spiritual sanity as you travel through a period of time like this that is not going very well and maybe could end very, very badly? You know, as I, I think about the porch and those difficult times in life, I'm drawn to a character in the Old Testament, a guy by the name of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet who lives 600 years before the time of Jesus. He lives in a very difficult and terrible time in the history of Israel. I mean, the people had sacrificed, they were sacrificing their children to pagan gods. Some of the kings were absolutely ruthless and so corrupt. And the weak and the powerless, they're just being taken advantage of during this time. Jeremiah is given this task of calling out the people's sin. He's given this task of, uh, of letting them know that judgment is coming their way. It's like God says to Jeremiah, I need you to go and to give this message. And now Jeremiah is, it's his job to speak to the people on behalf of God. And Jeremiah has been doing this for a long, long time. The first time that Jeremiah hears this voice, I think he's like, 18, 19, 20 years old. The voice of God comes to him and says, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as prophet to the nations. I think that he's a kid when he first hears the voice of God. And so as we open to the story today, it's, it's been a job that he's been doing for like 40 years at this point. If my math is right, and he started when he was around 20 years old, he's around 60 years old at this point. And his words have been largely ignored. His words have largely fell on deaf ears. The war that has been predicted is now at their doorstep. This calamity that he has been prophesying about is right in front of everybody. The bottom is just about to drop out of this situation. We're in Jeremiah chapter 32 this morning, and so if you have a Bible or you can grab one in the pew rack in front of you, open that Bible app, but I want to invite you to join me in Jeremiah chapter 32. The first two verses of this chapter, Jeremiah chapter 32, begins uh, this way, and here's what we read. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah king of Judah which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and, Jeru and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. And, and so what we are told here in the first couple of verses is that the, the city of Jerusalem is under siege. And not only that, but Jeremiah the prophet is under arrest in the city. The idea of a siege is that you would starve a city out. And so, as I understand it, Babylon, Babylon, the Babylonian siege, it would last for about 18 months. This army surrounded the city. They would pull up their siege ramps. They would pull up their battering ramps. And then they would just wait. People who lived out in the countryside, they would come into the city for protection. And so not only the residents of the city of Jerusalem themselves are in the city, but now all of these residents in the city are joined with residents outside in the villages around the city as well. You don't have fields inside of a city. 
You don't have cows. You don't have animals inside of a city. Those things are out on the countryside. And so all of this food is, there's a food shortage here. And then because of all of the people being so compacted together in this one place, disease starts to spread and break out. And the army is outside of your city wall and they are seeking to knock your walls down and come after you. Everything that Jeremiah has predicted is about to unfold and he is under arrest in the king's palace. You see, Jeremiah knows that life as they know it is about to end. Well, we have an artist's rendition of Jerusalem during this Babylonian captivity that we'll put up on the screen. But uh, the, you see the city of Jerusalem there in the background, and it's kind of burning up in flames. And then there is this parade of people that are being led out of the city. Nebuchadnezzar had this philosophy of deportation, which meant that when he conquered a people, he would move them out of their city. Because there was this fear that if the people were left in their cities, they would become super patriotic and they would just revolt against the, the, their rule, the rule over them. Particularly because Babylon was so far away from Jerusalem, uh, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to make sure that he could rule over and control the people there in Jerusalem. And so he, needed to, he wanted to move them out. And so Nebuchadnezzar, his way of dealing with um, the, the, uh, the, the fact that people may try to rebel against him is the fact that he would take them and he would uproot them and he would move them away. He would take them out of their homes. He would drag them off to other lands. That's what's happening here in this picture. In order to maybe a, a, a different way to help us understand this is uh, the map that we're going to put up on the screen next. And what we saw, we saw this map last week, but Jeremiah, uh, Jerusalem rather, Jer Jerusalem is there on the left and uh, Babylon is on the right. And what happened is they would take the people from Jerusalem. They would go up north, they would go around the Euphrates River, and they would then come back down to Babylon. Now it seems really close on the screen there, seems really close on this map, but that was like a thousand miles away. This was the death of a city. This was the death of a people. Everyone who survives this siege and the subsequent burning of the city is going to be carted off into exile. This happens in 586 BC, right after the story that we're reading today where these siege ramps have surrounded Jerusalem. For Jeremiah, life as he knows it is over. Life for your village, life for the people that you know as friends, it's completely over. And this is when the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. And God says, listen, I've got a job for you to do, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, when he finds out what this job is, he's like, what? I mean, you've got to be kidding me that you want me to do this. If there's ever been a day or if there ever comes a day in life where life as you know it seems to be over, you need to pay close attention to the story that's going to happen next here. If you've ever experienced a relationship that has been irreparably severed, or if you've ever been in a job situation that's very unstable, you're about to lose your job and you, you think finding another job is going to be almost impossible. If you've ever received some very difficult news from a doctor, and you know that life is about, as you know it, is about to be over. You just need to pay close attention to the story of Jeremiah that happens next here. 
Because while Jeremiah is incarcerated, he is under house arrest there in the courtyard of the royal palace. The Babylonian army has surrounded the city. They are ready to knock the walls down and drag off all of the survivors to another land. And it is during this time that the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, there's a little something that I just need you to do here. What I need you to do is to invest in some real estate. I need you to buy some property. This is part one of the message, the transaction. And here we begin reading in verse six. Here's what what it says. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shemuel, your, your uncle, will come to you and say, buy my field that is at Anathoth. For the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Anathoth was like three miles away from Jerusalem. If Jerusalem is in trouble, Anathoth is just going to totally be bulldozed as well. And so God speaks to Jeremiah and he says, Hey, your cousin is about to come to you and he is going to ask you to invest in some property there in Anathoth. And if I'm Jeremiah, I'm thinking, I mean... What kind of an idiot does he think that I, that I am? That I would go and buy this property in this location at this point in history? Jeremiah realizes that this is from the Lord, that this is something that God is asking him to do. And so he says, okay, I'll do this. But God, we're going to need, a, need to have a conversation after I do this whole thing. And later on in the chapter, we'll see that this conversation takes place between God and Jeremiah, but here, here's what we read, verse 8. It says, Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of the Lord, that, sorry, in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Verse 9 says, And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hannibal my cousin and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. So there in the royal palace, they're in Jerusalem here. Jerusalem is under siege. This whole real estate transaction goes down. The verses that follow this are, an, are very elaborate. They give a point-by-point detail of what happens, of what takes place, of what goes down. First of all, Jeremiah counts out the agreed-upon price. And it's 17 shekels of silver. And so he counts it out. 5, 10, 15, and 17. 17 shekels of silver. And and then there's the the documentation. I mean, if you've ever bought a house before, uh, you know that you have to go down to the title company and you have to sign a number of documents. And so Jeremiah signs these documents and uh, probably use some kind of a uh, Jerusalem Sharpie like this. But uh, he signs his name, Jeremiah. And then he signs a second copy, Jeremiah. And there it is. All right. He takes the first copy and it says that he uh, it's been witnessed by uh, his this scribe in Jeremiah's life, a guy by the name of Baruch. And he takes this first one and he signs or he rolls it up. He 
he, he takes a um, piece of wax, a hot wax, he puts it on there and kind of seals it. All right? And then for reasons that I'm not really sure here, but um, he, he takes the second deed of purchase and he also rolls it up. But with this one, he does not seal it. He, he just leaves it unsealed. And then he tells Baruch to take these two documents and he needs to go find a clay jar, a good clay jar that's going to last for a long time. And you might need to use your imagination a little bit, but this is our clay jar this morning. This was the best I could find. And, and so he takes these two documents and he puts them inside of the jar and he seals it up. And there it is. This is like the uh, 6th century BC safe. This is like the uh, deposit box today. Uh, that jar is a jar that would not... Um, erode, the, these documents would not erode in the temperatures of the, the, the day and the kind of climate of that day, the kind of climate of that area. This would not leak, and so they would seal this jar in order to preserve what was inside it. And so now the transaction is complete here. The price has been agreed upon, the money has been paid out, the documents have been signed, and everyone goes away, and then Jeremiah says to God, are you kidding me? I mean, God, thank you for allowing me to be a part of this, but I don't really see how this makes any sense. Why would, why would you want me to go and buy this property for? It doesn't make any sense. Beginning in verse 16, Jeremiah cries out to the Lord. He reflects back to him this goodness and the faithfulness of God to both him and to the people of Israel. And then you get down to verses uh, 24 and 25. And Jeremiah just continues to pray. And he begins to voice his concern. He begins to voice his confusion about what is going on here to the Lord. Listen to Jeremiah's objection beginning in verse 24. It says this. Behold, the siege mounds have come up to the city to take it. And because of sword and famine and pestilence, the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans who are fighting against it. What you spoke has come to pass, and behold, you see it. Yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Jeremiah is saying, you know what, this just doesn't make a whole lot of sense, God. I mean, you've got to be kidding me here. What, what's going on? Why are you doing this? People are going to totally make fun of me for buying this property. It doesn't make any sense. You see, there are certain opportunities, there are certain thing, times when it is a good time to make a purchase. And, and then there are other times where it is a completely horrible time to purchase property like this. I mean, if you think about it, for those of you who could remember back to 2007, just before the housing market had crashed, you know, if you buy a house in 2007 and you don't know that this housing market crash is coming uh, and that in a couple of years the, the housing value is going to go down like 40%, uh, it, you know, it, it makes sense that you might still buy it because you didn't see it coming. But it is a completely different story if you know that the housing market crash is coming and you still pay full value for the property anyway. And that's what Jeremiah does. He pays out cash for this property and it's going to be a total wasteland. And he says, God, you've got to be kidding me here. Why would you want me to do this? 
And so part one of the message is the transaction, and it is elaborate. And it, it, it involves paying out 17 shekels of silver, signing the deed, having it witnessed, putting it in this clay jar. And then there's the objection. But part two is about the restored hope, restored hope. This is God's answer to Jeremiah, beginning in verse 26, and we're going to read down through verse 35 here. And I want you to just hear um, what we read here. It says, beginning in verse 26, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. The Chaldeans who are fighting against this city shall come and set this city on fire and burn it. With the houses on whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods to provoke me to anger. For the, the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. The children of Israel have done nothing but provoke me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. This city has aroused my anger and wrath from the day it was built to this day, so that I will remove it from my sight because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah that they, have, that they did to provoke me to anger. Their kings and their officials their priests and their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught, and though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places to Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom. To offer their sons and daughters to Moloch, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they shall do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. God says, listen, the people have turned from me. They, they have uh, turned and they're following everything else. They're following after every other God but me. I have kept calling them graciously calling them back to myself, but they refuse to listen. And so now I'm going to show my power. I am going to show my power once again. I'm going to show that nothing is too hard for me. You read this and you think, well, I, I, I'm with Jeremiah here. I mean, I don't see how there's any hope in this situation. I mean, it seems really, really bleak. It seems life as the nation, for the nation of Israel is just completely over here. But God has a deep love. God has a deep care for his people. I want you to see how God's plan for restoration is so much greater than any plan that you or I or even Jeremiah could have ever come up with. Later on, at the end of this chapter, we read this beginning in verse 42. And I want you to see this. It says... For thus says the Lord, just as I have brought all of this disaster upon this people, so I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. Fields shall be bought in this land of which you say it is a desolation without man or beast. It is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Fields shall be bought for money 
and deeds shall be signed and sealed and witnessed in the land of Benjamin, in the places about Jerusalem, like Anathoth, Jeremiah's hometown, and in the cities of Judah, in the, the cities of the hill country, in the cities of Shephla, in the cities of Negeb, for I will restore their fortune, declares the Lord. What God is saying here is, listen, you think that this means that the story is over, but this is not the end of the story. And he says, you know what, there is going to come a day when I am going to bring my people back to the very land that they have been carried away from and uh, who are where they're being led away from right now. We're going to put that map of Jerusalem and Babylon back up on the screen here. But I want you to just think and follow with me uh, in this for, for just a moment here. Follow with me about what happens over 50 years later from this point. Jerusalem is on the left. Babylon is there on the right. The nation of Persia is also on the right, just a little further east of Babylon. But uh, the Persians are going to come and they are going to conquer the Babylonians after the Babylonians have their moment in the sun. The king of Persia, a guy by the name of Cyrus, he, has, he does not have a philosophy of deportation. While Cyrus comes to power, there is now a new country and a new government and new laws, new rules. And Cyrus allows the people who have been dragged away from their homelands to uh, go back to their homelands once again. The Babylonians uh, have come in. They have destroyed Jerusalem. They have deported all of the survivors uh, off to other lands. That happened in 586 B.C. And then in 538 B.C., Cyrus would come in and he would make this decree that the people could go back to their homelands, back to Jerusalem. Next picture here is of the walls of Jerusalem being rebuilt. And so uh, sometime after Cyrus makes this decree, there is another leader that comes on the scene and his name is Nehemiah. And he would take the Israelites back to Jerusalem and they would begin this process of reconstructing the city walls again. Nehemiah is on the other side of this story uh, of the people being led off into exile. Jeremiah has to lead the people as they decline, as they rebel towards the Lord. Nehemiah, though, comes when there is this privilege of leading the people back for restoration. And here in this text is what God is pointing Jeremiah to with this whole real estate transaction. Jeremiah says, our city is getting flattened and you want me to go out and pay cash and then you want me to sign all these documents, you want me to keep this in safekeeping for the future? I mean, this seems ridiculous, you've got to be kidding me on this. And God just says, you know what, I'm so not done with this story yet. You know what, I'm not done with my people yet. Jeremiah, there will come a day when the people who have been led off into exile will return. And I will bring them back home. And I will bless them. And I will prosper them. And I will provide for them. There will once again be joy in this land. And what you're doing right now in buying this property is pointing forward to a time when when there will be normal activity. Where people will buy and sell property in this community once again in the generations from now. 
If you're here today and you're just sick to your stomach because of something that's going on in your life, if your mind is spinning, if you are clinging to emotional health, I would just like you to focus on the story of the property here today and this transaction and the voice of God that just speaks into this story and says, you know what? I am so not done with this story yet. Life as you know it may very well be over. And, and, I, and yet I have something else that I'm going to do. I have a new future that I am predicting for you. I just need you to trust me that the story is not over yet. I need you to trust me that even though you might be walking through a very difficult, troubling time, a chapter in your life right now, but the chapter of hope is yet to come. There is a chapter of restoration that God wants to do in your life. If you're going through a dreadful season, or maybe, you, maybe there's one just right around the corner for you, but one of the biggest enemies that you will have to combat is the enemy of despair. Despair is different than sorrow. Sorrow is normal. Sadness is common. I mean, we, we are sad when we lose things. We grieve over loss. Whether it's a person or financial health or emotional health or mental health, physical health, you, you grieve. And that sadness is genuine. Um, it, 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 it's difficult. But sadness is different than despair. Despair is a, a point where you believe that there is no hope. No hope of ever laughing again. No hope of ever experiencing good things and joy in your life. For those of you who are walking alongside someone who is going through a very difficult time in life right now, the best thing that you could do for them is to remind them of this. Listen, this might not, you may not see it now, it may not seem to be a great time right now, but you just need to trust that God is so good to you. You need to trust that the story is not over. Trust that no matter how dark this season may feel for you right now, how sad you may be right now, this is not the end for you. Suffocating sadness does not have to have the final word. And in fact, there can come a day when you can laugh again and you can imagine a future for yourself again. Your greatest enemy is believing those things, uh, believing that something like despair is ruling your life. Despair is different than sadness. Despair is different than sorrow. Despair is different than grief. Despair is the enemy that says there is no hope. I'm totally done for here. But for those who would cling to Jesus Christ, for those of us who know the Lord, there is a hope. Because the things of this life are only temporary. And for those of us who would continue to hold fast, there will come a day when all of the wrongs will be made right. There will come a day when the restoration will take place and all things will be made new. Having our eyes fixed on that day can help us as we face the difficulties of life today in the here and now. Jeremiah is in a city that will be burned, and the people are going to be taken off into captivity, into exile. The story begins with this real estate transaction. It moves to the fact that God says, listen, uh, because of their sin, because of their rebellion, these people are going to have their city totally demolished. They're going to be taken off into captivity, but 
just because this happens doesn't mean that I'm done with them yet. One day, this city is going to prosper again. And the fact is, it did. It's the idea of restored hope, restored hope. That didn't make the sadness go away. And so the third thing that I want us to just kind of talk about and reflect on a bit here this morning is tears and trust. Tears and trust. Living through intense grief and yet somehow trusting in the faithfulness of God. The guy by the name of Thomas Chisholm, he was born in 1866. As a young adult, Chisholm spent long periods of his life uh, confined to bed, unable to work, unable to do much of anything. Between his illnesses, uh, he would try to push himself to work extra hours at various jobs in order to just make ends meet. At the age of 27, Chisholm came to faith in Jesus Christ. He found great comfort in reading the scriptures, in knowing that the Lord was faithful to him, that the Lord was providing for him. He started going on these missions trips, and while he was on these missions trips, he was inspired to write poetry, and, and he would write these poems, and then he would send them back to the States to a friend of his here in the States, a guy by the name of William Runyon. Uh, Runyon was unknown as a musician at the time, but uh, one of Chisholm's poems uh, just moved him so much that he sat down and he composed some music to the lyrics of this poem. 1923, the song was published, and the words of the song went like this. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. First, this wasn't a song that was sung very often, but then a professor at Moody Bible Institute um, picked up on this song, and he liked it so much that he started requesting it at chapels at the school. In fact, it got sung at the school so often that it became the unofficial theme song of the college. Later on, um, this song was sung at the Billy Graham Crusades, and soon everyone around the world was familiar with this song. Over the years, countless numbers of people have listened to this song being sung and have sung this song together and have been rejuvenated and experienced great joy because of this song. That's what trust in the faithfulness of God can do. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. It is not about our ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and somehow climb out of the hole of despair. No, it is about the faith that we have in God that he is telling a good story. The story is a long story, and it may even have some awful parts along the way. But when we think that it's over, it's not over yet. Now, these words, great is thy faithfulness, it's not, they weren't originally written by Thomas Chisholm. These words, great is thy faithfulness, came from the pen of the prophet Jeremiah in the book Lamentations, chapter 3. Jeremiah, he is weeping over the city of Jerusalem. He is seeing everything that's happening and he is just broken by it. And he writes, beginning in verse 21, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21, and it says this. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, or as the King James says it, great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, 
says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. This was written in the middle of a mess, in the worst kind of imaginable mess. And again, I just want to read it and read those verses again. It says, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. I think that surviving something like this with your faith intact will only happen if you are somehow able to hold on to and trust in the faithfulness of God in the process. I want to go back to the picture uh, that we took and talked about at the very beginning on the porch with my Aunt Mim. Over the last two years, Mim has gone through numerous tests. She has uh, gone, taken a number of very strong, abrasive medications that have just wrecked havoc on her body. She has gone through many nauseous days. She has experienced blinding pain. Early on in this process, she said, you know what, I just want to do this well. Whether, whether God heals me and we're praying and believing that he can heal me, or whether this thing ends up taking my life, I just want to honor God every step of the way. I just want to do this well. So we're sitting on the porch there that summer or September, warm September day. And I had a moment to just uh, take the opportunity to let Mim know that some of us here at the church had been praying for her. And tears began to kind of well up in her eyes a bit. And, and she smiled and she said, you know what? We serve a great God, don't we? And then she said something that I really didn't expect her to say. And she says, you know, I've been praying for you, for your family, and for your church. And I thought, wow, I mean, what an incredible thing to think that she would be praying for us. You know, I have no way of proving this, but I've wondered if maybe uh, if you've experienced some spiritual growth in your life, the spiritual growth that I've experienced in my life in recent years and months, maybe that has been the result of this lady who a hundred miles, hundreds of miles away has been praying for us in the midst of her battle with cancer there in Florida. I believe that through her journey, Mim has said, you know what, this is what I know. I know that God is good. I know that God is in control. And I know that God can be trusted. In the midst of this mess, in the middle of this nausea, in the middle of this blinding pain, God is good, God is in control, and God can be trusted. I don't think that Mim's story is over yet. I don't know how many more days God is going to give her of life here on this earth, but I, I do know that the promise of every believer is that to be pre absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And in the presence of the Lord in heaven, we're more alive then than we have ever been. And every pain and every hurt and every disease is going to be completely wiped away. And I think about the various people in my life who have tried to teach me how to live life well. But one of the things that I so greatly appreciate about people in my life like Mim and like others like her who have gone through some very difficult things is that God has used her and God has used some other people as well 
to teach me how to go through life's difficulties, how to even look towards death and dying well. Something that I think that we can learn from Mim's story as well as Jeremiah's story is that God, he's not done yet. He's in the business of making all things new. He's in the business of providing hope to the hopeless. And so as we close our time here today, I want to just leave you with simple and yet profound thoughts, truths from the Lord. God is good. God is in control. God can be trusted. He is not done with your story yet. We need to remember that on those days when we feel like giving up. Let's pray.